Thanks so much for praying for us, Yanni. It's good to add to the welcome Simon gave this morning. It's good to be together, and it's great to be opening up another of uh, God's books in the book, the Bible. So if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 1. One of our defining priorities here at Great Vic is that we want to be a growing church. Now, by speaking of growth, I don't mean primarily numerical growth there. By growth, I mean we want to be growing to become more mature as Christians, growing to become more Christ-like, growing in our knowledge of God's Word and the God of His Word, growing to know and increase in the knowledge of God, maturing, bearing fruit, flourishing spiritually. We want to be a growing church. We want to grow and mature in our knowledge of the gospel and how the gospel gives shape to every area of our lives. If there was ever a letter in the Bible to help us with this project of spiritual growth, It would be the letter to the Colossians that we're starting this morning and going to be running right through to the end of August, God willing. This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote from one of his imprisonments to a young fledgling church plant in a small but multicultural city called Colossae, which is in modern-day southwestern Turkey, about a a hundred miles east of the western coast of Turkey. As far as we can surmise from chapter 1, verse 7, this little church was planted in Colossae by one of Paul's fellow ministry workers, a man called Epaphras. Paul says there in chapter 1, verse 7, that it was from Epaphras that the Colossians learned the gospel. And it seems like sometime after the little church was planted and some believers were gathered, Epaphras now makes a journey towards Paul in prison. And when he arrives and speaks to the Apostle Paul, probably in a a Roman imprisonment, Epaphras reports to Paul how things are going with the new church in Colossae. And hearing Epaphras' report of some of the encouragements and the challenges facing the fledgling church, Paul, as an apostle, writes a letter to be read to the church with one primary purpose. He encourages them to press on to maturity. That is what the letter to the Colossians is all about. His message is essentially, don't stay where you are, a little group of immature, fledgling Christians. You're vulnerable in that state. Seek to grow, to mature, to move from being like a vulnerable little seedling to become a strong oak of righteousness. In chapter 1, verse 28, he states explicitly that this is the goal of his ministry among the Colossians and others. Paul writes, him, that is Christ, we proclaim, warning, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And then Paul says, for this I toil, 
struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. His central exhortation in the letter is found in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. And I tell you, if you wanted to know if I had any kind of theme verse for my life, this is it. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. You can see how he's exhorting them. You know, you received Christ. Now, learn to walk in him, live in him. Put your roots down deep into him so that you'll be established, strong, built up, a mature Christian. Who wouldn't want that? This is a letter to encourage and stir up believers to press on towards maturity. But here's what is really wonderful about this little letter, as is wonderful about all the letters in the New Testament. This letter was not just for the Colossians. There's something quite unique here. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 16, if you turn to it, Paul says, when this letter has been read among you in Colossa, see that you also have it read in the church of the Laodiceans. Now, Laodicea was a city about 10 miles north of Colossae. So Paul said there's truths in this letter that are not just for you and Colossae, they're for all churches. So after it's read to you, make sure it's read among the Laodiceans, and we imagine then it was passed through many of the other churches. God has seen to it that this letter has been preserved for us in Holy Scripture so that it can also be read to us. And this is a great privilege. A letter from the Apostle Paul to the local church, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to the local church at Great Vic, not just them then, but now, us now, to exhort us to press on to maturity. As a whole church, but as individual believers, believer, press on to maturity. That is going to be the message that we keep coming back to over and over again in this letter. So I would invite you as we begin this morning, be praying even now that God would use his word in your life over the summer to make this one of the greatest summers of spiritual growth for you. That this would be like plant feed for your soul. You know, we've got little plants on our steps at the moment, and the guy, I don't know whether it helps or not, but he gave me this big bottle of tomato feed, and he said, you give it to them once a week and they'll flourish. Pray that this would be like tomato feed for your soul, that you would flourish as God's Word comes to you in the power of the Spirit. So with that introduction in place, we're going to get straight into the text this morning and cover the introductory section of the letter from verses 1 to 14. This section is really easy to break down and organize. It consists of three parts. You get a greeting in verses 1 to 2, an expression of thanksgiving for what Paul has heard God is doing in their midst. That runs from verse 3 down to verse 8. And then in verses 9 to 14, Paul prays. He shares his prayer for the Colossians that they would press on towards this maturity. And remember, his goal is to encourage them, to stir them up, and to get them excited about growing as Christians. So let's look at the greeting, first of all, verses 1 and 2. The form Paul's greetings often take in his letters is something we're very familiar to 
uh, with today because it's very like how we compose emails. You get a, a from. Who's it from? Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. So Paul's with Timothy. Perhaps Paul is dictating and Timothy is writing. You're often going to see Paul saying, we thank God, we pray for you. You're to think Paul and Timothy are writing this in some way together. Or the greeting comes from both of them. So that's your from line. Then two, who's it two? To the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae, or in Christ in Colossae. Paul is addressing this to the Christians gathered in this little city of Colossae in such a way as to remind them who they are. They are the saints. That means God's holy people, made holy, made righteous because of their faith in Christ. They're called to live faithful lives, set apart as the family of God, who are both in Christ and in Colossae. Now, I want us to think of this for a, a little moment. Paul's writing to the believers saying, look, you're in the city of Colossae. That is where you're located. It's part of the worldly empire where God has placed you so that you can be salt and light. But remember, as you live your life in Colossae, Christians, you're in Christ. You're a member of another kingdom, the in Christ family of God. You're under the realm and reign of Jesus Christ. You're not in Adam. You're not at home, ultimately, in this city of Colossae. You're in Christ. You're a member of that far greater kingdom that has broken into this present evil age. You're to live out the values of the kingdom of God right where he's placed you. The in Christ life in whatever place God has placed you. And that applies to us. We are in Christ this morning in Belfast, called to live the identity and values of the kingdom right where God has placed us, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our families, as we go to Starbucks or Cafe Nero or Boojum or whatever it is, we are called to be the people who are in Christ in Belfast. And I tell you, the in Christ people in Belfast are the salt and light and hope of this city. So you get your from line, who it's sent to, and then you get your subject line, your little title, and Paul writes it there in verse 2, grace and peace to you from God our Father. This is a lovely prayer for the release of divine favor and power in the lives of of the Colossian Christians. He wants the Colossians to enjoy and live in the goodness of God's grace and peace. I've said this over and over again to you, but I'm going to say it again. God does not want us to languish and live under a gray sky of condemnation, guilt, low-level bad feeling that God doesn't like us. Those gray skies have been broken open in Christ. We're called to live under the blue skies of grace. And so Paul says, grace to you, peace to you. That is the Father's posture towards you in Christ. Live in the goodness of that and the encouragement that that brings. I am convinced 
that one of our greatest problems that draws so much strength from our Christian lives today is that we don't know who we are. This week, go into your sphere of living and remember continually in this world that is set up to make you forget who you are, try to keep preaching to yourself your in-Christ identity. This week, try and remind yourself, this is who I am, one of God's holy ones, in Christ, in Belfast, or in Lisburn, or in Newton Abbey, or in Newton Arts, or in Ballymena, or wherever you're coming from and wherever you're living in this morning. I've been doing that this week in the garden. I go out to pray usually in the garden in the morning and when it's nice and quiet. And I've just been sitting thinking, Lord, I am one of your holy ones. In Christ, in Belfast. Called for that in Christ identity to shape all my interactions today. Over the coffees with people, the pastoral visits, the sermon preparation, whatever it is I'm doing. In Christ, in Belfast. So, that is the greeting of the letter. Let's move on, secondly now, to the expression of thanksgiving that Paul gives for what God is doing among them, verses 3 to 8. Now, you imagine how encouraging it would have been for these Colossians gathered together to have heard this read out aloud in their gathering, a greeting and an encouragement from the great apostle Paul. Just put yourself back in Colossa in the first century. You're sitting there, a very vulnerable little fledgling gathering of Christians in the might of Rome all around you, wondering, are we ever going to make it through? And then you hear the leader get up and read this letter. And Paul writes, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. How encouraging would that be? Paul's praying for us. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. How encouraging it would have been, would have been to have heard that. Paul's affirming them because he's heard that they're exhibiting the marks of true Christians. Summarized by those three words, faith, love, and hope. That is what should characterize every Christian. Faith, love, and hope. I wonder are those characteristics clearly evident in your life? God has enlightened the Colossians. He's moved their hearts. They've come to believe in Jesus against the odds in the melting pot of Colossae in the Roman Empire at the time. Their faith has transformed their lives it's finding expression in real love among them for God and for one another and for others. And Paul is just so thankful to God for this work of grace. He's thanking God because God does that in a community. God penetrates and breaks in. The power of the gospel and the power of the spirit breaks in and transforms lives. And Paul is just thanking God for a work of grace in this little city. In verse 5, Paul says their faith and love have flourished because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, it's really important that you pay attention to this. It's really instructive for us because this tells us how the faith, love, and hope are related. 
hope of what is ahead in heaven produces and strengthens faith and love in the present. That seems to be what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Verse 5, after speaking of their faith in Jesus and their love that they, they have for the saints, he says, this is because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So what he's saying there is what will help us to endure present suffering and affliction and challenge is pondering future glory. You've got an incredible hope stored up for you in heaven. It's pondering this incredible inheritance, this hope that drives and strengthens and produces your faith and your love. This is a major theme in not just Paul's writing, but the Apostle Peter's letters when he writes to a church under affliction. Peter opens his writing and he says, we're born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. And then he exhorts his recipients saying, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Thinking about our future glory should be a large part of our Christian lives. Thinking about the blessing of the inheritance that is ahead of you. Imagine it. A sinless existence. Everything that breaks our relationships and causes disunity, gone. All your insecurities, all your anxiety, all your depression, all your battles with assurance, all those relationships that you wish were better but are not better. Imagine that hope that you have. One day, everything will be made new. Everything will be made right when he appears. We are to ponder this and allow that future hope to drive our faith and to drive our love in the present. I think the other side of that coin is, if you're not heavenly minded, this is going to stunt the growth of your faith and your love. And so later on in chapter 3, Paul is going to spend time thinking about this. Chapter 3, verse 1, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. One of the themes that's going to come through is that if you want to grow and you mature, you've got to start living with your mind in heaven and the things that are above. Let a gaze on heavenly glory And all that is ahead in Christ comfort you and strengthen you when life in this fallen world is tough. Paul then proceeds at the end of verses verses 5 and into 6 to rejoice in how this hope has not just come to the Colossians, but indeed is spreading out and bringing transformation across the whole world. The gospel is inherently dynamic and powerful and life-generating in the hands of the Holy Spirit. Paul's saying the gospel's bearing fruit. It's increasing in the world, but it's also doing so among you, your wee community, Colossae. Imagine again how encouraging this would be. The gospel's going out. It's bearing fruit. It's growing. It's increasing all across the world, and, and it hasn't passed you by. In Colossae, it's taken root among you. The gospel's there with the power of the Spirit and it's bearing fruit. It's increasing. It's growing. And how wonderful for us. We can apply this to ourselves this morning. We can celebrate this at Great Vic. The gospel is bearing fruit and increasing among us. That's amazing. We can thank God for that because it could be otherwise. 
But as the gospel bears fruit and increases among us as a community, let me ask, is the gospel bearing fruit and increasing in your life this morning? Or are you hidden away, seeing the blessing, seeing the encouragement, just hoping no one will see that you're actually not in a good place? We want to grow. We want to flourish. Maybe we could ask this question. If your soul, your spiritual life, your walk with God was a garden this morning, what state would the garden be in? Would it be beautiful and flourishing? Or would it be very neglected? The lawn needs mowed big time. The little pond in the middle is all green and murky. It needs cleared out. You need to do some serious weeding. You need to get the tomato feed out. If your spiritual life was a garden this morning, is that garden a pleasant place for the Lord to be? Maybe we need to turn again to the Holy Spirit this morning for new life. For him to take our hand in the garden and to do the work of cutting back the sin that hinders growth and actually bringing forth the fruitfulness that the Holy Spirit delights to produce in our lives. We know we need the Spirit for this because of what happens in verse 8. Paul says, Epaphras has made known to us your love in the Spirit. That means Epaphras has shared to us the work of the Holy Spirit among you, bringing forth the fruit of love. And so we know from just that one little verse, we need the Holy Spirit to bring this new life to us. So that's Paul's expression of thankfulness that opens this letter. He's saying, I'm so thankful for God's work of grace among you. And just before we move on to the third section, where I'm going to concentrate just in the last third of this sermon. I think it's just striking to look at and observe what moves Paul to thankfulness in this letter. Look at what excites him. He's excited about the gospel. He's excited about Christian fruitfulness. He's excited about people increasing and growing and maturing. He's so excited about it that he just bursts into thankfulness and joy. What excites you? Does the gospel and the movement of the gospel across the world get your attention? Does it get your heart rate increasing slightly? When you hear of God's work in our midst or in the midst of other churches, does that, get you, does that make you feel thankful? Or are you just far more excited about the latest TV series? Or about a football match? Or a rugby match? And maybe at the rugby match you can cheer and shout your head off and celebrate and rejoice. And in church you're, you're just like, when's it going to be over? What excites you? I'm just so challenged when I look at what, the, what excites Paul. He's just absolutely bursting and brimming over with joy and thankfulness because of gospel fruitfulness. Maybe we don't need the Spirit just to do a work on our garden. Maybe we need God's Spirit to do a work on our value system this morning. What we value, what we prize, what gets us excited. Let's ask God to be doing this work that is a work of maturing us as Christians. So that's Paul's greeting. That's Paul's expression of thanksgiving. And now from verses 9 down to 14, Paul shares how he's praying for the Colossians that they would keep maturing and flourishing. Verse 9 begins with these words, and so, or the NIV says, for this reason, or the King James says, for this cause. So because of all that God's doing, Paul says, from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you. 
We've heard of God's wonderful work among you. It's excited us and we're praying that God would do more. And to encourage them, he shares what he's praying for them, why he's praying for them, and then the central truth that drives everything. And as we get into this, let me just remind you of something really important when you come to a little prayer like this in Scripture. Anytime you come to a little prayer like this in Scripture, it is a beautiful revelation of the way God wants us to be. Because think about it. God has inspired this prayer so that we will pray it in line with what he wants to bring forth in our lives. So anytime you see a prayer like this in Scripture, you have such a lovely window into what God wants my life to be like. So let's look at what, what Paul prays first of all in verse 9. I'm asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now when Paul writes here about praying for them to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. It's not so much a prayer for what God wants them to do, like spiritual direction. It's more a prayer that they would know how God wants them to be in the world as his ambassadors. He wants, he prays, Paul, that the Colossians would know how they're to live as God's people in Christ in their city. He's praying that they and um, that, that we would know how God wants us to live in our families. How he wants you to love your wife or your husband or your children. He wants us to know how God wants us to love our friends. How we're to be good church members. How he wants us to be involved in the local church. How we're to be good witnesses in our city. That we'd know how God wants us to think about material possessions, money, sin, pride, sex, life, death. Paul's praying, I'm, I'm praying that you be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That you'd know how God wants you to be in all of these settings and circumstances that you're in. At work, as you interact with that difficult colleague, I'm praying that you'd be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you'd know how to live. To know God's will, we need spiritual wisdom and understanding. That could also be translated wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Holy Spirit imparted spiritual wisdom about spiritual things. Paul is praying that the Spirit of God would fill them with wisdom and understanding to know how God wants them to live in the world and that requires Holy Spirit wisdom and understanding. This is a good prayer for you to pray for yourself. And this is a good prayer to pray for others. It's good to ask ourselves, when was the last time we prayed like this for ourselves or other people? Because these prayers are given to shape our prayers. Notice in verse 10, this prayer for insight is not an end in itself. Paul prays that they would know God's will for how they should live so that their lives would be shaped by this knowledge. He prays this for them and then says, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. 
And then we get a real gift here in what comes next. Paul outlines four elements that characterize the life that is pleasing to God. So if you're serious about wanting to live a life that pleases God, you're going to be sitting here going, give it to me. Show me, help me. We don't do these things, let's be clear, to merit God's favor, to get him to like us. We know we're saved by Christ alone, but the way we live in Christ does matter in this world. Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, as Christians who are saved and righteous and holy in Christ, we're to make it our goal to please God, to live lives that are pleasing and that bring pleasure to our God. So let's look at these four elements of the life that is pleasing to God. Let's be asking ourselves, are these elements present in my life? This is actually really helpful because it shows us what growth will look like. You want to take seriously growing and maturing as a Christian? Well, here's what that growth looks like. Number one, bearing fruit in every good work. In Ephesians 2.10, we read that we are God's workmanship created in Christ, created new creation in Christ for good works, to live the life of the kingdom here where God has placed us. The life that pleases God will be characterized in some shape or form by works of service for the kingdom that have the effect of promoting fruit in others' lives. Does God see evidence of fruitful works in your life? You know your motives can be mixed, etc. But think of what God sees when he looks at you. What does he see? Does he see someone who's, well, mixed up in lots of ways, Lord, but I'm genuinely trying to do something to serve you. I'm genuinely trying to do something that's going to Advance your kingdom. Maybe you can think about your service in this church and, and say, Lord, there's what I'm trying to do. For this is not just a challenge, this is actually encouragement because if you can think there of the little acts that you're doing to try and serve the Lord, this can really encourage you. Your works of service genuinely please God. However small they are or however big they are, Think of all the little things or big things that people do to serve in the life of this church. Often unseen, underappreciated perhaps at times, God sees everything you do and it pleases him. Sunday school teachers have gone out this morning missing the teaching to teach our children. That blesses my heart continually. You think, are, are we small group out there and there are people that are giving up their time and they're feeding this week to go out and feed and sow the gospel into the lives of our children? If you see them, Thank them. Appreciate that. That is incredible investment. I remember an Easter Sunday going out, I think it was, to pick up the kids, and I saw, I think it was uh, Jimmy and someone else in the room with Hudson and Elliot and Wee Cain, I think it was. And I just thought, wow, two guys giving up their Easter Sunday morning to go and teach those kids the gospel. God sees those kind of works, and it pleases him. And we could go on to crash leaders who are out there managing the crying babies. <laughs> and it must be stressful to sit sometimes and have a baby just wailing in your ear as you bless the mother or father or whoever's sitting in to receive the word. That's beautiful. That's the church. 
Think of those who serve on the welcome team, small group leaders, office bearers, abide team, AV team, media people, so many different people serving in formal and informal ways. These works, evident in our lives, please the Lord. That's just so wonderful. That's so encouraging. And we must not be afraid of that. Sometimes we're afraid to speak of this life that pleases the Lord because we don't want to tilt over into meriting God's favor. Of course we don't. But those who are saved are called to live lives that bear fruit, that please the Lord, and here's one of the ways you please God. You get involved. You serve. You, get a, you, you find something that you, you enjoy, or maybe you don't even enjoy it. It just needs done, and you put yourself in there. So that's one of the things that should characterize the life that is pleasing to God, bearing fruit in every good work. Number two, we're to increase in the knowledge of God. It pleases God when he sees us seeking to know him more. This was the goal of our Trinity series to help us with this. As Christians, we have access to God in Christ. We're invited to spend the rest of our lives getting to know him more and to have our souls satisfied in him. And let's remember, we never know him enough. You might be 50 years into your Christian life, 60 years, never hit cruise control and say, yeah, I know him well enough because he is an infinite ocean of delight for you to just keep swimming deeper and deeper and deeper into. You'll never exhaust him. So we're to increase in the knowledge of God. It is so sad that sometimes those who call themselves Christians don't seem to have any interest in knowing God more. A Christian who doesn't want to know God more is a contradiction of terms. So let me ask, how well do you know God? Do you want to know him more? How you answer this question will tell a lot about the health of your spiritual life. Maybe you need to do real business with God this morning just in answering that question. The third characteristic then of that life that pleases God is it is a life that depends on God's strength to endure. Verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Remember, this is what Paul is praying for them. The life that is pleasing to God is a life that acknowledges we're not strong enough to face this life in a fallen world alone. Now, some of us are probably pretty good at this one. We know we can't cope. Everything overwhelms us. We need God's strength to survive and endure and press on. But we're called to look to the Lord and his strength so that we can endure, not just with patience, as Paul says, but with patience and joy. We're called to endure the afflictions and challenges of this life, but not just in any manner, not just like the people of the world. We're called to endure with a godly manner. Think of this. How does my perspective on the hard things I go through, and how does my life, what does my life look like when I'm going through hard things? How does my life look different to the person who doesn't know Christ and who's going through hard things? For it should look different because you have an incredible hope. And that hope should radiate out. We don't have joy in the suffering itself but joy in the God who's made sure that suffering will never have the last word. That's where we find our joy and our hope. The fourth characteristic then of the life that pleases God is it is a life characterized by thankfulness. 
Thankfulness to God for his grace. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Man, the words of this verse are wonderful. Just think of that word, qualified. The Father has qualified you to share in this incredible inheritance. We were not just unqualified to share in the hope of this heavenly inheritance. We were actually disqualified. And there's a big difference. You can be unqualified to do a job. Sorry, you're not, you don't have the qualifications. But you can be actively disqualified because of a misdemeanor or something serious. We were disqualified from knowing anything of this wonderful inheritance that is ours because of our sin. But God stepped into our disqualified position in the person of his son who took our disqualification and owned it and through his death and glorious resurrection totally transformed our situation. He's qualified us. It's incredible. And Paul explains what he's done further in verse 13. And the focus on the Father's work here is lovely. The Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, you could be listening to that list of four characteristics that exemplify the life that's pleasing to God, and you could start to feel pretty condemned, couldn't you? And Paul brings us right back at the end here. Let's remember what drives our hope in this life, one in whom we have forgiveness, because we will fall short, but that should not dissuade and discourage us from pressing on. You know, there, you often hear at a certain time of the year about the transfer window being open in the Premier League, and players, during the trans- that when the transfer window is open, they can transfer from one team to another. One team can buy them, and then they talk about the transfer window closing. Well, you think about the picture that Paul uses of this eternal transfer that the Father does in our lives through his Son. We were in the team called darkness. The team called condemnation. The team called under God's displeasure. And the Father, by His grace, we're told in this verse, He took us out of that team and He transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. His banner over us is love. The team loved by God. My delight is in her. My holy ones in Christ with whom I'm well pleased. He's transferred us out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son, And the fee of our transfer, the death of Christ, paid in full, never to be transferred out of God's team forever. And Paul brings us back to there at the end of this incredible opening section of the letter because this is the hope that drives our thankfulness. Our hope in this reality stirs our faith. This is how you grow as a Christian. You focus your attention on the goodness of what God has done for you in Christ. Jesus said it is by abiding in him that we are fruitful. If you want to grow and mature as a Christian, don't make growth the goal. Make getting to know Christ the goal. 
And this is the conviction that is demonstrated in the rest of this letter as we will progress through it. Because next week, Paul starts and brings us into perhaps the deepest Christological part of all of his writing in the New Testament. He puts before us a vision of the majesty of the sovereign cosmic Christ because he knows that when we get who Jesus is, our faith and our maturity will start to increase and grow. So, as we move through this letter, I want you to be asking yourself, do I care about growing and maturing as a Christian? If you're here and you're not a Christian, why not? Could this be a series where I listen in and learn what it is to find my all, my forgiveness, my new life in Christ? Yes. So, as we move through this book and look to Christ, through these summer Sunday mornings, be praying this wonderful prayer for you and for others that the Lord would fill you with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, new series that we have embarked into this morning. I do pray that, Father, by your Spirit, through your Son, you would produce growth in our lives as we are fed your Word and as we receive it week by week. And as we support this morning series with the evening series in praying in these wonderful truths, we pray that you would grow us we give you thanks, Father, that the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing across the world, and that it's also doing so among us. And we give you thanks and pray that that would continue in, in you saving people, restoring backsliders, in you bringing new levels of fruitfulness and flourishing in our spiritual lives. Often it will be subtle as we live it out week by week, but we pray that we would remember continually that we are the people in Christ, in Belfast, holding out this incredible hope for our city and our world. Help us to do that well, we pray, in a way that pleases you, Father, to the glory of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, let's respond by standing to sing of this wonderful name that is above all names, Jesus, your name, Prince of Peace.
Father, we do pray that you would be steadying the knees of the weak this morning. Father, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love that is yours and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.